If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This month sees the 75th anniversary of the British and American attack on Dresden in 1945. The bombing raid devastated the German city and it remains one of the most controversial actions by the Allies during the Second World War. The Dresden Raid is the subject of a new book by the historical author Sinclair Mackay and he met up with our editor Rob Attar in London to discuss the story of a wartime tragedy. Rob began by asking Sinclair to describe the city's history prior to the Nazi era. Well, I mean, the thing about Dresden was that uh, before uh, the darkness of Nazism stole over, it was this extraordinary kind of flashing cultural duel. Uh, A very beautiful city uh, nestled deep in the valley of the Elbe River, uh, only 100 miles or so from Prague, uh, so very close to the Czech border, very close to the Polish border, and surrounded by some gentle hills and forests and some rocky plains. And it was fantastic... Uh, draw for huge numbers of artists and musicians. Uh, Wagner lived there in the 19th century. Uh, In the 20th century, Richard Strauss uh, was there at the Opera Company. Amid the many brilliant artists they had over the years, Caspar David Friedrich, the romantic artist of the 19th century, uh, lived in Dresden for many years. And you can see actually how the city kind of influenced and informed uh, some of his work. Then you get the the famous modernists like Otto Dix. Uh, These modernists who were there at the Dresden Academy of Arts, which itself was kind of pulsatingly kind of vigorous. And on top of that, it drew visitors from right the way around the world, particularly huge numbers of English and American 
visitors and people who came to live there from England and America. There was actually an English language newspaper in Dresden uh, before the First World War. There was an American church. There was English restaurants. Debutantes from England went out there to, to learn German, but also to go to finishing school. So here you had an incredibly cosmopolitan city that was called the Florence of the Elbe, but it was even more cosmopolitan than Florence. It, it, it was part of a 19th and 20th century grand tour. You had to go to Dresden um, and had this fantastic social world with a, when with it. So then in 1933, when the Nazis take over in Germany, to what extent does Dresden change as a result of Nazi rule? It changes almost instantly simply because the pressure of Nazism from the start was so intense. The the most obvious example of that being Hitler's hatred of modernist art. He said that such art was the product of sick brains. And so a few years before the famous degenerate art exhibition of modernist paintings that the Nazis staged, Dresden was among the first cities to, to kind of fall victim to this. Artists like Otto Griebel and Conrad Felix Muller and Otto Dix uh, were prescribed instantly in 1933 by the Gauleiter, Martin Muchman, uh, who also banned jazz almost instantaneously. Anything modernist would not be tolerated. Now that's from the city's artistic point of view. That was the most, the, the most obvious change. Obviously, from the, the point of view of the city's many... Th- I think there were some 7,000 Jewish people in Dresden. It was a fantastic place uh, in terms of just... That, but this kind of... Carefully, because it was it was more than it was more than assimilation uh, with the, the, the Jewish population. It was just it was just it was not a kind of um, it was not any kind of issue at all. There's the Jewish population. There was a fantastic 19th century synagogue built by the same architect who built the Opera House, and it stood there as a proudly on the banks of the river in the very centre of the city, not far away from the sort of cathedral and all the rest of it. And so Dresden's Jewish population was uh, the tremendously kind of relaxed and very very happy in the city. 1933, obviously, that instantly changes. And there were a lot of very anxious conversations from the start about leaving and how best to go. Uh, there were Jewish owners of department stores in Dresden, some of the wonderfully kind of grand department stores, which had some jewellery and some furs and all the rest. But uh, these department stores were appropriated instantly by the Nazis. Uh, Jewish businesses generally were appropriated by the Nazis. Then by 1938, of course, you had Kristallnacht. And uh, in Dresden, that was a, a night of horror as it was across Germany. But in Dresden, particularly hurtful because Kristallnacht started in on that beautiful synagogue, which went up in flames against the, the, the November sky. In terms of other changes, Dresden wasn't just this amazing cultural jewel. It was also an incredible place for inventors and inventions and new and coming technology. And that's the other kind of thing that changed. Before the Nazis and uh, basically at the turn of the 20th century, and this was a city that had seen the most fantastic kind of leaps of uh, invention. Obviously, in the 18th century, they, they had porcelain. Uh, porcelain was the great sort of Dresden innovation that swept the world and decorative porcelain, which is what Dresden became famous for uh, throughout, you know, throughout Europe. But there were also sort of the other inventions like mouthwash uh, that came from Dresden. Carl Lingner invented mouthwash there. Uh, there was a huge emphasis on kind of the public hygiene. There, there was firms like Seidler Nauman that made brilliant typewriters and bicycles and sewing machines, which again were sort of exported right the way across Europe, right the way across the continent. Uh, there was Zeiss Icon, the fantastic photography firm, which brought in huge kind of innovations in terms of, kind of home photography and home cinema photography too. Now, with the advent of the Nazis, uh, once again, all that 
very gradually started to change. And as the war approached, and then as war came, all these brilliant factories, which are doing all this brilliant kind of technical work with optics and, and new technology, were turned entirely to the purposes of war. And those who worked in those factories saw gradually the importation of forced labor, slave labor, basically. Uh, the women drawn from the USSR, Jewish women drawn from concentration camps, uh, working in incredibly kind of hideously stressed conditions. So again, the, the atmosphere of the city changed kind of instantly with 1933. But for, for the Dresdeners themselves, these citizens having to kind of adapt to this new world where suddenly blood-red swastikas were flying on civic buildings, and yet still these beautiful operas were being performed, and the extraordinary ethereal choirs were still singing. How is it possible for the two to, kind of, uh, to coexist? And that, I think, is one of the, uh, the, the central kind of fascinations of the pre-bombing story of Dresden. And how enthusiastic were the people of Dresden for Nazism, and how far did they go along with things like the anti-Semitic persecution and the acceptance of forced labourers? Now, I think it's it, it's incredibly difficult to to gauge enthusiasm because this was that they were living in a, 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 a terrorist state. Basically, they were being all citizens were living under the threat of death. Telephones were being bugged, conversations were being monitored. If you didn't give the Hitler salute in the street, uh, you could be beaten up by SS thugs. Anyone could be taken in the middle of the night, taken to cells, uh, beaten up, executed for simply loose talk or demoralizing talk. So. Uh, I think it's fair to say not much in the, the, the way of enthusiasm. And the counterpoint to that, actually, now one, one of the things I found so piercingly touching in the Dresden story is that we have the diaries of Professor Victor Klemperer, a philology professor and Jewish philology professor. It was forbidden for Jewish people to keep diaries, again, on pain of death. If the diaries had been discovered, uh, that... that basically could have, would have been it. But with great courage, he kept this day-to-day -day diary from 1933 right the way through to his death in 1959, which gives the most extraordinary kind of overview from the Jewish point of view of what was happening in the city. He and his wife decided to stay, even though he was expelled from the university, uh, he was no longer even allowed to use the university library. He was forced to have his cat put down because the Nazis said that Jews were not permitted to keep pets. The cruelties piled up day by day by day and became ever more excruciating. And he could see how Dresden's Jewish population was being basically taken to death camps week by week, day by day. Uh, more and more and more Jewish people were, were getting the, the, the orders to pack a bag for three days and go to the railway station. Professor Victor Kemper made clear they knew what was happening. It wasn't, it wasn't a secret. That was what made it so particularly terrifying. But... There's a counterpoint to that, which was that he also noted moments of extraordinary kindness from Gentile Dresdeners uh, who would quietly either in a shop slip him extra rations that he wasn't allowed to have or would perform others of small acts. He was, he was in a forced labour party in the, the mid-1940s during the, during the war, sweeping snow from the roads. And the supervisor could see he was an old man with an ailing heart. And he said, look, actually, just don't, don't push yourself too hard. Just stand on the side there. Those small acts of kindness, he noted, and they now make an extraordinarily moving reading because you do wonder, among a population of German civilians... So many of them could see, so many, so many of them said to Professor Klemperer, we hate what they're doing to the Jews. So you do, you do wonder very much, really. 
And prior to the raid in February 45, how far had the war militarily affected Dresden, and particularly in terms of bombing? In relation to other German cities, uh, which, of course, Dresden had heard all the news about, you know, the devastation in Hamburg, Cologne, Lübeck, Mannheim, uh, all these German cities which had been hit, the Dresdeners was slightly ignored the fact that they hadn't been hit. Uh, there were some rumours going around that uh, the Churchill's grandmother had lived in Dresden for a while, and that was why Dresden was uh, ignored by the Allied bombers. They, they didn't want to touch this place, which had a special place in Churchill's heart. It had been targeted before. It had been targeted in 1944 by the Americans in daytime raids, and the Americans uh, were going specifically for the railway marshalling yards because Dresden was a huge transport hub uh, it was a hugely busy railway junction with lines going out to Eastern Europe, to, to Southern Europe, up to Berlin, and there was a huge amount of military movement through the city. And so the Americans made these daytime raids in, in 1944, which claimed several hundred lives and sent uh, the people of Dresden down to these uh, makeshift extemporized shelters. But the, the people of Dresden were always watchful. They were always expecting it. But there were no special shelters built for them. Unlike other German cities, it was felt by the Dresden authorities that, that it was not necessary to construct special bomb-proof shelters. Underneath the city, underneath the old city, was just a whole maze of brick cellars which had been knocked through. These low little brick cellars through which people could move uh, basically under under the old city from from uh, from the River Elbe to the Great Garden Park. Uh, these were deemed sufficient. Uh, there was only one special shelter, specially constructed shelter in, in the city, and that was for the Gauleiter, Martin Muchman. He was all right. Everyone else uh, was... The, the, the fire alarms would go off night by night. They would always be false alarms, these, these air raids, sirens. People would troop wearily down to these low brick cellars, uh, furnished very sparsely with little brick tables. They would sit there. And that's... That was their experience of the bombing war before February 1945. Uh, a whole series of uh, air raid alarms which always disturbed their sleep, but never brought any bombers with them. So when the night of February the 13th, 1945 came, no one could have anticipated. And so why, from the Allied side, was it, was Dresden chosen? Not only to be bombed, but to be bombed with such numbers and such ferocity. It was, despite what a number of people said in the years afterwards, it was a legitimate military target in its own right. First of all, because it was this amazing transport hub, not only the, the railways, but roads too, Stalin and the Russians had requested that Dresden be on the list of potential bombing sites, because at that point in the war, February 13th, 1945, the Soviets were... 60 miles away. You know, the Eastern Front was creeping closer and closer and closer. To, uh, to, to, and any attack on Dresden would hamper troop movements and movements of vital equipment. On top of that, there were something like around 200 factories in and around the city, which were all engaged in war work and highly technical war work too. This was optical instrumentation for, for, for various machinery. They were making bullets and cartridges. Every factory had been turned around uh, to war purpose. Very darkly, on top of that, there were huge numbers of refugees. And this is one of the elements that makes the events of the, the, the night are extraordinarily 
nightmarish to read about anyway. But the, the further element of uh, these incredibly vulnerable people having fled the Soviet advance uh, from Silesia and Pomerania, these thousands of people piling into Dresden from the countryside, coming in through the railway station, being dispersed through the city to shelters, then to be sent, the idea was then to send them further westwards. But the Allied idea was that if you launched a big enough bombing attack on the city, it would cause such terror and confusion among so many refugees that that in itself uh, would also hamper the German military and their movements. So the calculations were very cold and very frightening. And at that point on the Allied side, was there much squeamishness about the fact that a large number of civilians were likely to be killed? All the memos that you read now in in uh, the fascinating collections of private papers to be found in sort of Christchurch College, Oxford, Lord Portal, Lord Harris's papers, Arthur Harris, Air Chief Marshal Harris, who who his name is most associated with the bombing of Dresden now. His papers are to be found in um, RAF Hendon. And what you see among them is Arthur, Arthur Harris has borne the weight of moral responsibility. His name is a byword for, for basically butchery and for, for inflicting carnage and cold-blooded carnage. And it's, you know, it's no secret that he, he had a complete blank indifference to the fate of uh, German civilians. He simply couldn't have cared less. But he was not alone. By that stage in the war, by 1944, by the, the start of 1945, when the Germans were still fighting back with extraordinary kind of ferocity, no, such delicate considerations uh, had, I think, completely gone by the wayside. So it wasn't just Arthur Harris. And the decision to bomb Dresden kind of wasn't his. It came from higher up. Um, and those higher up in the Joint Intelligence Committee and in the Air Ministry and in the War Office no, I mean, I think the, the, the fate of civilians by then was a matter of chilling indifference. After Dresden, it suddenly became a different matter again there. And was this this British attitude of indifference, was that in any way influenced by the fact that Nazi Germany had treated civilians so appallingly throughout the war? I think it was more to do with the, the duration and the scale of the war. I mean, it has been suggested uh, and continues to be suggested that because of the, the German bombing campaign against Britain, for instance, it was a, a Portsmouth, Belfast, Liverpool, as well as famously London and Coventry in November 1940. Coventry went up in a firestorm that was melted melted guttering and made stones glow red and brought this hideous kind of death toll and just extraordinary kind of devastation. And then there were the Bidecker raids on Bath and Exeter and Canterbury. So there was there's always that sort of feeling and suggestion uh, that there was an element of retribution in this, that uh, Dresden, being this wonderful cultural jewel, was n no longer sacrosanct because look at what the Nazis had done. There isn't really, though, anything to suggest that this, that this wasn't retribution. This was more, it's, it's more like taking a kind of sledgehammer to the enemy. As far as I can read from the, the papers and the correspondence that you see now, I can read it as a, just a desperate effort to make the war stop and to make the Nazis stop. Uh, it was beyond kind of retribution. It was just, there comes a point after so many years of conflict, after some six years of conflict, where just rationality, cold rationality, actually just starts to evaporate. And there was something not wholly rational about the attack on Dresden, but the scale of the attack on Dresden. That said, you know, we, we never like to engage in counterfactuals, but it should have been different. The Americans were originally supposed to lead off 
uh, with the daytime raid, and then the British would have followed afterwards with the nighttime raid. And in a counterfactual sense, perhaps that might have changed everything. If the, if the Americans had had the chance to launch that daylight raid, for various reasons they weren't able to, various technical reasons they weren't able to, but if they had, then perhaps after that, the city, the, the, the old city would have been evacuated. People would have made their way out to the suburbs. And then when the British raid came at night, maybe the results would have been less devastating. So fundamentally, these things can't be known. But what we do know is that directly after the, the, the Dresden raid, suddenly, instantly, the British and American attitudes towards area bombing and the bombing of civilians changed. And that's, that's a really interesting point, actually, because this was not the first heavy bombing raid on Germany, and indeed the death toll was was higher in some of the other raids. So why does Dresden change things more than, say, the firebombing of Hamburg or something? I think the other element in the Dresden story that inspires particular horror is that the, the raid came so close towards the end of the war. But again, this is hindsight. Uh, you know, we could say now, February the 13th, 1945, where well, they were just weeks away from the end of the war. But, but yeah, we can say that confidently with hindsight. But it still didn't feel like that at the time. Obviously, the, the Nazis were dissolving, and that could be seen. But they were still they were still fighting with such, such venom that it was conceivable that the war may have continued till the end of the year, bitterly, bitterly dragging on and on. So there is a case to be made that, you know, they, they couldn't have known. But the closeness to the end of the war makes it particularly horrifying. I think also, simply because it wasn't widely known how many factories there were, for instance, and it wasn't really widely understood uh, about the the, the the railway junction and the, the troop movements. It looked like an indiscriminate attack on civilians, basically. And the way in which those civilians died uh, naturally inspires the greatest horror because it's almost impossible to imagine. It's so ghastly. All these thousands of people sitting in those dimly lit brick cellars, which, as I say, had been knocked through. They weren't they weren't specially constructed in any way to withstand what uh, what happened that night. As the, uh, the the fire started spreading after the first raid, the, basically the Dresden raid came in two waves, and that was the the extra kind of cruelty of it. The air raid sirens started going at around twenty to ten. Dresden citizens started making their way down to these uh, inadequate brick cellars. Then at 10.03pm, uh, the first of the, the marker flares, the incendiaries started coming down. Those who were watching from the suburbs and the hills around described these brilliant kind of white and green and red marker flares going down on targets and describing them as Christmas trees. A number of children described them as Christmas trees because they looked so dazzling and mesmerizing and kind of weirdly beautiful. Then the incendiaries followed and the bombs followed. And those who were underneath those bombs and those brick cellars uh, because they'd been knocked through, uh, the ventilation wasn't sorted out properly. And so the the poison gases basically started seeping through from, from cellar to cellar. Uh, and on top of that, the fires raging above meant that the people in the cellars started to... Well, as I say, the, the suffocation uh, began first. But then the, out of the, the, the first raid took about 25 minutes. Thousands and thousands of incendiaries and bombs falling on this very concentrated area uh, in the, the, the old historic city. But then in some parts of the city, the all clear signal was given and people started emerging from those brick cellars because they thought, that's it. Uh, you know, the raid's finished. We, the, and they, they now had the fires to deal with. Uh, these great gulping, devouring fires that were sort of eating away at all these timber-based buildings. 
And as they did that, uh, there was some like uh, the extraordinary account of Victor Klemperer that night, uh, who by that time, he and his wife were living in, in what was called Judenhauser, a Jew house. Uh, they'd been forced to leave their own home. And they were very close to the the, the, the centre of the city. They'd been down in a shelter, witnessed the, the, the terror of the bombs falling, uh, the extraordinary noise. And then after the raid, they, they emerged, saw the fires, and Victor Klemperer actually went back to bed, as indeed did a few other people around the city. There was a few uh, teenagers who went back to bed thinking about school the next day, even as those fires kind of took hold. And then at around... 1am, the air raid sirens started again because there was another British formation coming over. And by this stage, uh, the people returned now to those inadequate brick cellars. But by this stage, the firestorm started to build and started to take a hold. What was in, there in the way of defences from the German side? Were there any air defences? Were there any uh, aeroplanes scrambled to fight the bombers? There was pitifully little. Uh, in the way of air defences. There should have been some anti-aircraft guns uh, based around the city, and there had been previously, but they'd been moved to the, the Eastern Front as part of the, the effort against the Soviet forces. Uh, there were some uh, not, uh, German fighter planes at the nearby airport on the hills above the town. Uh, Ten fighter planes against 796 of the British bombers. They knew, I think, it was fairly clear that they knew there was very little that they could do. How do you take on this extraordinary, uh, this extraordinary kind of vision of the apocalypse, which is basically what uh, what the British brought? So, in terms of defences, uh, no, uh, very very little indeed. In fact, for, in, in to all intents and purposes, nothing. Um, that's one of the things that made the raid so, from the Allied point of view, so unusually technically successful. Uh, the other element was the weather conditions, because curiously enough. Even though Sir Arthur Harris and many others were fascinated by the science and physics of firestorms, they were actually quite difficult to create because it depended so much on a certain set of weather. In Dresden that night, the weather conditions were perfect. And so all the fires within the old city were watched from above uh, by the bomb aimers who could see the streets below that the kind of lattice of fires that they could see these kind of the rectangles of fires as the, the, as the flames spread from street to street and then basically started to turn the air inside out and became this kind of great onrushing fire tornado. So basically anyone who was out in those streets would find themselves being tugged insistently. If their lungs hadn't already been scorched and blackened, they could be tugged up into the moor of this kind of fire tornado hurled up into the air and was burnt to death high up in the air. I mean, terrifying, terrifying prospect. And thinking about the bombers themselves, what kind of people were crewing these these planes? The people who were crewing these planes, I think were, they were very often very intelligent and very sensitive young men. And this is the other difficult part of the story, actually. We've seen, for instance, how the statue of uh, Sir Arthur Harris in London has been splashed with red paint because he's regarded as a war criminal. But how are you then to regard these extraordinary bomber crews? Are they to be seen as war criminals? I mean, clearly, obviously not. What they did was the lives they led, uh, again, were, I think, almost impossible to imagine. Here were uh, these young men who all volunteered. They weren't conscripted. Each Lancaster had a crew of seven people, from the pilot to the bomb aimer to the navigator to the flight tactician to the gunners, uh, who were basically defending. And they were flying deep, 
deep into enemy territory, particularly on this mission, knowing already of the extraordinary mortality rate uh, so far in the war. 55,000, over 55,000. Uh, bomber crew had been shot out of the sky. So all these, all these young men knew that the, the chances of them uh, being shot out of the sky, falling, burning to the earth, were extremely high. Now, how do you, how do you live life like that? How do you kind of, how does that work psychologically? Uh, in the Imperial War Museum now, and various other sources, there, there, there are lots of good diaries and letters who have been left behind by airmen, and they make extraordinarily moving reading now. Not just the courage, actually, but you just see this, I don't know, sort of determination to cling to life, to see it through, but knowing that what they did, what they were doing, was kind of vital to the war effort. To be part of the bomber crew, you had to be kind of incredibly kind of quick-witted, and alert, ready to to react to anything. But that sensitivity also meant that you know they were touchingly prone to superstition. There were, the, the, there were lots of bomber crews who had to put their socks on in a certain way, or had to take cloth caps with them in their aeroplanes. Or there was one uh, bomb crew member who always carried his girlfriend's bra with him on missions because uh, there was a powerful talisman. Uh, as long as he had that bra, somehow he would be safe. And you think, how was that? possible to do that night after night and then come back to base and see all those empty beds uh, representing those who didn't come back and live with that proximity to death the, the cliched view of the raf wartime airmen now is that of kind of ludicrous acronym-based banter some top hole AO, all this bbfq all that kind of stuff but actually the, the reality is so so much more serious when they were back in england they would spend their time sometimes going to lectures, uh, academic lectures. They would read poetry. They would write poetry. As I say, these were cultured, sensitive men. And again, this is part of the moral fascination of the story, I think. I mean, their mission was very straightforward. Their mission was to destroy Nazism because Nazism was a terrible moral taint that was threatening to take over the world. And they were doing everything they could. I think it was the literary critic David Lodge, uh, whose own father was an airman, who said that there was this kind of image in later years of the airmen being almost like medieval knights or knights uh, on a sort of grail mission, that they had that kind of nobility about them. So, so whatever you think about the motives of bomber command itself and uh, the ethics of area bombing and civilian bombing, it doesn't apply to these airmen themselves who were just, just amazing in their kind of courage, both physical and psychological. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And then it produced a reaction in Britain, particularly from Winston Churchill. He looked at Dresden and suddenly had an intense attack of anguish. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. 
you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply back on the ground in Dresden, one of the subjects about the raid that's been quite fiercely debated over the years is the number of casualties. What do we know now about how many people were killed? Uh, The Dresden authorities have themselves been extremely careful about this uh, because in Dresden, even now, remembrance is a battlefield and there are those who seek to appropriate the memory of the long-distant dead for their own political purposes. I mean, I'll, I'll come to that. But in the initial shock of the initial aftershock of the raids, it was Joseph Goebbels who put the number of fatalities as 250,000. There was never any evidence that it was as many as that, but it was vital for German propaganda purposes at that point that the Allies were to be seen as as steeped in innocent blood as the Nazis were, uh, that there was an equivalence here. Goebbels was very keen to get that out to the world. And it was one of those figures uh, that was spread uh, throughout the neutral countries. In later years, the figure was revised somewhat. There was a very controversial historian who put the number at 135,000 in the 1960s. That in itself had been gleaned uh, from a historian in Dresden who I think possibly had his own agenda. And so once again, the figure of 135,000 became fixed. Uh, so much so that the novelist Kurt Vonnegut, who wrote uh, the brilliant and now immortal Slaughterhouse Five, uh, which had Dresden and the Dresden bombing as its dark baseline, Kurt Vonnegut used the figure 135,000 too, because that was the accepted fact. Kurt Vonnegut, incidentally, had been an American prisoner of war and he had been in Dresden that night. And Uh, ironically enough, many of his Nazi captors were much more vulnerable than he was throughout the bombing because uh, the slaughterhouse in question, uh, where he and his fellow prisoners were being kept, literally a slaughterhouse where they were keeping the carcasses of uh, pigs and and sheep, Uh, but it was a concrete-based structure, so as the the bombing unfolded, uh, there he was. Uh, What's happened in more recent years is that 
there was a special historical commission in Germany uh, uh, based around Dresden to, to look into this question of numbers. And they have basically worked it out that the, the number of fatalities that night was around 25,000, which, again, is almost impossible to conceive of. I mean, this is one of those numbers where, <laughs> you, you know, you can't. Also, I think, chillingly, it's impossible to be uh, exact because there were so many refugees in the city that night uh, and presumably then so many undocumented people. And uh, on top of that, one of the most hideous aspects of the story was uh, when we're talking about body count, we were talking about what's left of bodies in many of those brick cellars what were very often found as desiccated mummies, as of liquefied remains. There was a, the, the bodies without heads, the bodies that were dismembered, um, and in the streets themselves, in the, the, in the, the hours and the days afterwards. There were, there were civilians for, who came in from the suburbs in search of relatives, in search of friends, who basically had stepped out onto an alien, dead world, just complete rubble, where once had been streets, so they couldn't even navigate. And in among... All this rubble with body parts and, and heads. It's, it's a vision of hell, and it's almost impossible to comprehend. And you also, you also see this uh, vision of the authorities who were very quick to, uh, to see that the, the threat of disease might come. So they had to get rid of these bodies very, very quickly. So they set up pyres in uh, the old market square, uh, where hundreds of bodies uh, were set fire to in the open air. And that was kind of like a, literally a medieval vision of the end of the world. Did the raid on Dresden, as far as we know, have the military impact that it was intended to do? Again, it's it's one of these questions that's very difficult to, to quantify. It, it certainly hampered troop movements, and it certainly knocked out factories like Zeiss Icon and Seidler Naumann and various other factories around the town. I mean, in those terms, I would say yes, but the, 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 the other side of that is that in terms of the damaged railways, for instance, uh, there was a functioning railway line up and running uh, just a matter of days afterwards. The, the Nazi authorities were very, very quick to get it moving again. Uh, and actually, one of the most extraordinary parts of the story, uh, once you've been through the absolute nightmare of uh, the firestorm, the bombing, and just the, the, the obscenity, the, the medieval obscenity of uh, of all these corpses is... You know, the medical authorities, the hospital stayed open. Uh, the senior medic, Dr. Albert Fromm, could have worked through the night of the bombing, uh, made sure that hospitals were set up in villages uh, around, so military hospitals were converted for civilian use. Uh, civilians themselves were evacuated to rural billets. And in civic terms, uh, the speed at which the authorities managed to get in kind of food and even simple things like some tea and coffee... I mean, just kind of extraordinary. So, I mean, in that sense, no. I mean, there was kind of, there was kind of defiance in the city, which could have said that no. And it kind of you slightly wonder what the point of the lesson of it is, even with that level of devastation, does bombing ever work in any kind of conflict? And this is very much a question for for, for now as well. Uh, you know, we we see in conflicts in various places around the world, uh, you know, the, the bombing of civilians. Uh, can you uh, can anyone think of a single example where it ever worked? In the case of Dresden, you have, I think, this fascinating, fascinating distinction between the, the disgusting Nazi regime and the, the, the hapless Gauleiter, Martin Muchmann. But then you've got a kind of civic response running alongside that. As I say, you've got these fantastically... Uh, 
organised medical orderlies who who piled in from kind of Berlin. Uh, you got some fire engines piling in from sort of uh, different towns around the regions, people volunteering from around the region to 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 help in the midst of this absolute devastation. Uh, there were witnesses who remembered medical orderlies going around uh, checking people's eyes because one of the most, uh, of all the many hideous things that night, uh, those who were the, the walking wounded found their eyesight hideously damaged by the floating ashen embers uh, that got everywhere. And we had these very sort of matter-of-fact orderlies going on spatulas and eye drops and organising, uh, shuffling groups of people uh, in, in such a way that, that some comfort was kind of broad. So yes, the dark fascination of the story then is 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 not just the devastation and the death, but how then people could respond to that. And it shows you something about the elasticity and the adaptability of the human spirit. It was absolutely extraordinary. And earlier you mentioned the fact that attitudes towards bombing changed after Dresden. So what was the reaction in Britain and also in America to what happened. Curiously, if you read the British newspapers now from the time, the, the, the day after the raid and the day after that, the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Mail and the Daily Mirror all published the news. They were all saying that Dresden is now a city in ashes. I think one newspaper put it at 1,400 bombers rather than 796 came over. There was no secret about the, the devastation uh, that had been wrought. Even if they didn't say how many fatalities there had been, there, there was, it was absolutely plain that Dresden had been flattened. And there didn't seem to be an immediate kind of recall. In fact, uh, rather tastelessly, the Daily Telegraph had a, a spoof joke headline in its Peaceborough column which said, uh, Dresden, new version of bull in China shop, uh, referring to the porcelain industry. Think, oh, <laughs> really? It was an American reporter, Howard Cowan, who a couple of days after the raid was exploring further the devastation and he described it in report as terror bombing. He didn't do so critically, which is the curious thing. He did so with enthusiasm. He said uh, basically in this report that at last the Allies have brought terror bombing to the conflict in an effort to extinguish the morale of the disgusting Nazi regime. But it was that crucial phrase, terror bombing. It somehow got past the censors and it made its way into the American press. And at that point, the Americans recoiled furiously. From the point of view of the American Air Force and the American hierarchy, they had always been about what they called precision bombing. They engaged in daylight raids. They knew that it was absolutely vital that in moral terms, they always had to be completely way, way, way above anything that the Germans were doing. And uh, you know, this phrase precision bombing, uh, there was no precision bombing. They didn't have the technology then for precision bombing. You know, if they were aiming for railway marching yards, uh, civilians would get killed too. But that was certainly the intention anyway. And so this phrase terror bombing produced instant uh, reaction. They just absolutely could not have this at all. And then it produced a reaction in Britain, particularly from Winston Churchill, who suddenly he looked at Dresden and suddenly had an intense attack of anguish, uh, so much so that he famously sent a memo to Bomber Command and uh, to Arthur Harris pleading that the Britain should not engage in mere acts of terror. Now, to Bomber Command, particularly to, to Arthur Harris, that was an extraordinary kind of broadside because uh, the, from Air Chief Marshal Harris's point of view, he had not. He'd been prosecuting a war. This was how to fight a war. He, he did not regard himself as engaging in mere acts of terror. But for the Prime Minister uh, to suddenly turn and say that, uh, it meant that area bombing was a strategy that they were 
now looking at very, very closely, because it was also to do with what came after the conflict uh, from the, the British side, but also the American side. Because if it had been seen that they had been in, engaged in terror bombing, once the Nazis had been defeated, how best were they going to win the German civilian population around them if it had been seen that that had been their, their tactic? So uh, uh, part of this was about the propaganda that would come after the war and how Germany was to be denazified after the war. Uh, but also on top of that, I think there's a genuine kind of moral anguish from Churchill because he said, you know, have we become beasts? Basically, he was saying, is this kind of who we are? Though it's almost as if he had awoken from a fever dream. And you can almost yeah, you can almost see that happening in various other kind of figures around him too. There's a, a moment of blinking and then a sudden lurch of horror. It took a while for the phrase terror bombing to be used in the British press, uh, but I think it was used in Parliament, uh, brought up in Parliament by uh, Richard Stokes, who had been very much against area bombing all the way through the war and was very particular uh, about going for the government on that. And that, I think, was the point where people in Britain and America sort of drew back from what had happened. Was there a similar level of squeamishness felt about some of the attacks that were taking place, say, on Japan, where in Tokyo the firebombing there killed far more people, in fact, than Dresden? Yes, I mean, the, the American raid on Tokyo on March the, tw- March the 10th, 1945, which, uh, again, brought a, a firestorm that's a far, kind of, that, that far outweighed Dresden. And I think uh, the answer to that is no, in, in a curious way. It's... Again, it's so difficult. To, it's so difficult to know, isn't it? The, the exhaustion, not just among the, the the senior command and the government after six years of conflict, but also, I suppose, among the civilian population too. And if the end of the conflict is within sight, how keen and sharp is everyone's moral sense at the end of that? If you simply want a conflict to to come to a conclusion, I think the answer is no. And the, the raids on Germany still went on. There was a town called Pforzheim. Uh, on the edge of the Black Forest, which previously uh, had been known as the Golden City because that's where they made all sorts of watches and precision instruments. And again, had been completely turned over to war work and highly technical war work. But it was a beautiful city with lovely little streets and again, inadequate shelters. Uh, and there was an allied bombing raid on that after Dresden, which proportionally was far worse than Dresden. It, was, it, it, it killed something like 25% of the population of the town. It was a quarter of the population of the town. Destroyed 83% of the housing. You know, the ultimate in what Lord Charwell, Winston Churchill's uh, scientific advisor, would call de-housing, a very chillingly technocratic term for basically killing civilians. Uh, so it went on. And there were further raids on Dresden, too. The February the 13th and the 14th didn't bring an end to it, because, of course, after the British raid on Dresden, the following day, on the 14th, the Americans came over for their daylight raid on the railway marshalling yards. Uh, such was the horror of the night before that in a number of the civilian accounts that you read now, they almost hardly register the Americans. It's, it's kind of a macabre uh, truth. There was one uh, 15-year-old lad who was obsessed with stamp collection, who was exploring the, with horror the, the, the ruins, looking to the relatives, and he became aware of the music in the sky as, as this new raid was coming over, and he remembered his disbelief, but then not being sort of touched by it. It was because the horror of the night before had been so intense. But following that, in the month afterwards, there was an American raid in March 1945, because once again, they were seeking to hamper troop movements. And then there was another one in April 1945. Now, that was literally three weeks before the end of the war. And that was quite a heavy American bombing raid, too. I think it was something like 600 bombers. And again, they were aiming very specifically for the railway marshalling yards, because it was all about hampering uh, movement of materiel and and that kind of thing. And again, these raids didn't register in the way that the February 1945 one did. But I think they 
kind of show that the city was, in its own way, a legitimate military target. So from what you're saying, I get the impression you disagree with the charge that has been levelled at the attack on Dresden, that this was some kind of war crime. It was unquestionably an atrocity. It was unquestionably an abomination. In moral terms, it still absolutely chills the soul. The term war crime itself is, I think, difficult because it has a legal precision about it. And as I say, the Dresden was unquestionably an atrocity, but contrary to what many people say, there, there was a legitimate reason for bombing it. It wasn't simply going for defenseless citizens. It, it wasn't just that, even though, you know, you would say 796 uh, bombers, obviously that is going to, you know, the, the aim obviously was to, to, to destroy a beautiful old city and to, to bring death uh, to so many of its inhabitants. But if you were to describe Dresden as a war crime, you would then have to go back over the RAF's strategy of area bombing all the way through the war. And you would have to track it back, I think. And you would have to, to look at Cologne and you'd have to look at Hamburg, Essen, Lübeck, Mannheim, all the other cities that were targeted in the same way. And with civilian populations de-housed, as Lord Charwa would put it, and you'd have to ask then, were all those bombing raids war crimes as well? In which case, I think you would have to kind of rethink the entire kind of British strategy and kind of what the war was about. And that's obviously a legitimate thing to do, obviously, because you must always question every single aspect of this. But I think there's something about the phrase war crime that it's it's used in a moral rather than a legal sense. And it has an effect of actually sort of shutting down avenues of inquiry in a curious way. Uh, rather than opening them up, because it has an effect of, the, of shutting down inquiry into why precisely there were so many bombers used on, on, on a city or you know why they came over afterwards. Were those war crimes too? Were the Americans equally guilty uh, then of this war crime? It leads you all into all sorts of different directions. But as I say, this is linguistics, really, because I wouldn't hesitate to say that it is unquestionably an absolutely horrifying atrocity for which it goes beyond language, actually. And then something which you do touch on later on in the book is how Dresden has recovered and come to terms with what happened to it over the years since. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that. I think, yes. I mean, the, the fascination of the story of the Dresden doesn't end in February 1945, uh, because what you see then is the repercussive aftershocks of that night, uh, but then also the aftershock of uh, May 1945 when the Soviet forces march into Dresden and basically appropriate the city. Dresden, at that point, and you know, so much of East Germany, becomes falls under the control of the Soviet Union and under the control of Stalin. And the speed with which the communists took over the civic structure, you could have marvel at it. Every kind of aspect of life, uh, every political aspect of life, uh, from an education, health, even Russian street signs uh, going up uh, in, the, in the summer of 1945. As I say, with the old city, still this kind of alien dead world of rubble, the absolutely kind of unrecognisable. But the suburbs around and the new town across the River Elbe, not so badly touched, in many cases not touched at all. So you still have this kind of functioning city kind of around the ring, which the Soviets then take over and which then the population of Dresden, who've been living under Nazism since 1933, have been living under this totalitarian rule, now have to adjust to a new totalitarian regime. And yet somehow you read in different accounts, it's one of those extraordinary things among civilians, even amid the trauma, the, just the unthinkable trauma, life somehow finds a way. 
culture somehow finds a way. The, the famous Kreuzchor, the, 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 there's a Dresden choir, which is famous throughout Europe and the world uh, from the Kreuzkirker, and they're the best uh, singers. They never stopped, you know, all the way through. And they find new choristers in the immediate aftermath of the war as the Soviets take over. Opera comes back. It's, it's an extraordinary city. Uh, and then the Soviets start rebuilding and clearing the rubble, which itself is the most extraordinary kind of Herculean task. And very often the case that civilians walking along the street would sometimes just be press-ganged into moving rubble around because there weren't sufficient soldiers to do it. And they would find excuses if you didn't have the right papers on you. Right, that's it, you're doing a day's rubble clearing. On top of that, the, the Soviets were very quick to, to move into the factories and move into the agriculture and just basically steal equipment of steel machinery, which were all spirited back to the Soviet Union. So uh, their totality grip on the city was uh, very quick. But in the 1950s then, they, they start to bring housing projects and new architecture. And this is part of the Dresden that we see now, actually, curiously. Buildings from the 1950s and the 1960s, built in the wake of the death of Stalin, but still under this under the Soviet regime. Buildings which could gleam with kind of futurism, and you could, you could see the kind of utopian thinking behind them, even if they looked so grim and utilitarian. These housing projects still stand today, and they're actually in quite a good nick. And the, the main shopping plaza, the Pragerstrasse, which had once been fantastically support with kind of fur shops and jewel shops and all the rest, but it was reconfigured as this giant kind of rectilinear kind of architectural project. Next to that, then, you have the old city itself and the rebuilding thereof. And I think that one of the ex most extraordinary things now about the Dresden story is that if you were to visit the city now, and if no one had told you about the history, or if you knew nothing of the history, of what had happened, you would look at a lot of these beautiful old buildings and you wouldn't have imagined for one moment that anything had happened. They, they rebuilt the, the castle by the river, the Catholic cathedral, most famously the Frauenkirche, this beautiful Baroque church with a wonderful dome which had been built in 1726 and which had dominated beautifully the Dresden uh, skyline, featuring in all these paintings from Bellotto and uh, the various other people. This was one of the, obviously, the casualties of bombing. Uh, it, it collapsed inwards a couple of days after the bombing. The, the dome just got sucked inwards by gravity. And the Soviets left it untouched for many years simply because actually there just wasn't the money uh, to rebuild it. An incredibly difficult technical task. But in recent years, they have rebuilt it. And what you see now, uh, not just the exterior of it, but the interior, which has been reproduced in every single particular way, from the amazing kind of blue and gold paintwork to the, the elaborate frescoes of saints that are painted on the ceiling, and the, the, the gold, the Garden of Gethsemane altarpiece, and the beautiful galleries, uh, the 18th century galleries. Again, it's just, it's, it's a marvel, actually. You walk into this thing and you think it could just be the real thing. It's absolutely extraordinary. But at the base of it, you see blackened masonry, and that was the original masonry of the Frauenkirche. And basically what they're saying is, yes, this is rebuilt, and this also shows you the, the rupture in history. But, yes, the, the regeneration of the, the old city and the, the very sensitive landscaping. So where they haven't reproduced buildings exactly, they've kept the skyline the same and they've kept the roofs the same. So that if you look out now uh, from the top of the Frauenkirche, where you can go, uh, there's a brilliant balcony, we can stand and overlook the city. And if you do so now, what you're looking out over is quite a faithful kind of reproduction of the city that you would have seen in the 1920s and the 1910s. Uh, and that is kind of inexpressibly moving because you can see in the descendants of uh, those who live there now, there is a kind of comfort that comes with that. But 
the landscape is also carefully patterned with echoes of the past so that no one will ever forget. There are, there are plaques all over the city to the Jewish population, for instance. Uh, there's obviously a great acknowledgement of the horror that was visited upon the Jews. There are rebuilds of things like the Kreuzkirk, where uh, it's been in the interior has been re- rebuilt in a carefully modernist style. And there are photographs of how it used to be and exhibitions of how it used to be. So that the past is always honoured and acknowledged. And it's very important uh, because in Dresden, remembrance is so electrically uh, sensitive and continues to be so today because there are those on the far right, not only in Germany, but from all over the place, who want to appropriate Dresden and the bombing of Dresden for their own political purposes. They want the civilians of Dresden of the night of the bombing to proceed as martyrs to the Allies because then it gives it an equivalence to the Holocaust. And you see, once you start going down that road, you see just how chilling it is. And you see how extraordinarily important it is that history is handled, obviously, with the greatest care by everyone. And as I say, the, the, the Dresden authorities are fantastically brilliant at this and have been fantastically brilliant on this. Every February the 13th now, the the bombing is commemorated. There's a performance in the Kreuzkirche of the Dresden Requiem, which is composed by Rudolf Mausberger, this wonderful composer. And it's almost overpoweringly moving work uh, performed by the boys of the Kreuzkirche. Then at 9.45 or so uh, in in the old city, all the church bells start ringing out. It's not a pleasant sound. They ring out with fury and chaos uh, because it represents the air raid sirens. And there is a kind of terror in the noise. And you find yourself involuntarily looking up at the dark sky and you can almost see the bombers. You can almost see the kind of marker flares. And these bells ring out furiously and with enormous clangor for about some 20 minutes until 10.03. And that's the point at which the bombing started. Uh, and then Dresdeners light candles in the, the new market square and the old market square. And before that, uh, the, the, the citizens of Dresden form a human chain as well. And that's basically to, to keep out the far right-wingers and various other lunatic protesters who, who want to grab this and grab history for their own. Because if the Dresden is saying, no, this is how we mark this. And the important thing now, apart from anything else, is reconciliation and ensuring that no horror like this ever happens again. The Dresden authorities have also been working with, there's a British charity called the Dresden Trust, which has done fantastic work and works with the Dresden authorities and all sorts of different projects. Uh, there was the golden orb of the Fraunkirche, which I think was uh, part of the work of the Dresden Trust. It was made in Britain and it was donated to Dresden as a, a mark of a, a atonement, a symbol of atonement. I think very recently some trees have been planted in the new market square, again, as a, a token from the British side that this should never happen again. And Dresden has been twinned with Coventry. I mean, it has been for a number of years. They twinned in 1959. But there's always this sense of an intensely close relationship. In fact, actually, when I was at that recital of the Dresden Requiem that night in the Kreuzkirche, I was sitting next to an old German lady, and I don't quite know how. She divined uh, that I was English. And at the end of the performance, she turned to me and said, this is for Coventry too. So there's always that uh, sense that we've got to bridge those gaps now and make sure that these atrocities cannot happen again. And that's basically the, the mission of the, the Dresden authorities. And it has to be pointed out too, all of this, the, the modern city, as I've portrayed it, it's, it's, the commemoration is very serious and very somber, but 
Dresden is not a morbid place. It's exactly the opposite. It's incredibly light and blithe and full of life. And the, the streets are suffused with music again. It has the most amazing buskers in Europe. If you go there in the summer, which I recommend, it is absolutely wonderful. Uh, the streets of the old town and the city are filled with a cappella tenors uh, doing extemporized opera. And there are people playing violins. There are people playing uh, double basses. It's, it's the cultural sense of the city. And, you know, this sense of it as a cultural centre uh, is very, very much back again. And the streets themselves are very lively and friendly. You go across the river, there are some fantastic sort of bars and restaurants, but also the, the, the lively sort of student population. The streets are incredibly kind of friendly and the city kind of pulsates uh, with a cosmopolitanism and it puts you very much in mind of the pre-First World War Dresden and the 1920s Dresden of artistic innovation and of hip young people doing kind of extraordinary kind of vigorous things. See, I think that is the great triumph now of the Dresden story and that's why I'd recommend anyone to go there. But you, just, you, you just wouldn't want to leave. I think I've been through everything I was going to ask you. Is there anything else we you think we didn't cover that... I, I didn't talk very much about the, the eyewitnesses looking at the firestorm. I mean, obviously, when you're in the eye of the storm, you, you can't see it because all you're seeing is death. There are people literally spontaneously bursting into flame in streets. Their clothes caught fire. The heat was so intense. Also, on top of that, there were glowing embers falling like uh, kind of molten snow, if you can imagine uh, such a thing. So even those who were di not directly in the centre... Uh, found that they emerged from the, the, the shelters. There's a lovely old couple called George and Marilyn Erler, and he was the air raid warden for his block, uh, a little to the east of the city. And they're, they're, they're quite a grand couple. They had a very, very nicely furnished flat, and they had a, the cellar underneath in which they, they sheltered. And their house hadn't been hit directly, but the windows had been blown out on the first raid. And they went into their apartment, and... They were called glowworms, these embers that just flew in in this ever-rushing wind and everything started catching fire. Curtains started catching fire, furniture started catching fire and then became this desperate effort to preserve what they could but then they realised that was going to be impossible and then when the second wave came over it was back to the shelters uh, then their their home was destroyed. So many others of countless homes were destroyed. But what you see from those eyewitness accounts, there's so many of them from people who are living not directly in the centre not directly in the heart of that firestorm but who are looking on from a slight difference uh, a slight distance uh, from the hills around the town they were kind of mesmerised by the, the, the terrible spectacle of it uh, there was a young physicist called Mishka Danos who was working with Professor Heinrich Barkhausen at the university and he was in the south of the city uh, overlooking the city as the firestorm took hold and as a physicist he was looking at this extraordinary phenomenon of physics basically this tower of light that rose almost a mile into the night sky and consumed kind of all within it he said to his own discomfort he felt a little like the Emperor Nero watching Rome burning, but you could—I mean—you could imagine from that distance, not only the the, the fear and the terror, but also just the, the not being able to to move from looking looking at it. And you see a lot of that. There's one eyewitness, a young fifteen-year-old uh, who I think I've mentioned before. He was basically obsessed with the stamp collection, but he was there on that night helping refugees around. Uh, helping refugees into to, into shelters. Then when the raid began, he and his mate just about made it home. And again, they were on the other side of the river, so they weren't directly in, in the heart of the firestorm. But what he saw, the, the way that the sky started changing colour, 
the pollulating heat that came right the way across the river. And again, once again, the embers. So that he had to put on a pair of goggles in order to, to, to go outside because otherwise he knew that his eyes would be singed and burned. And then seeing some figures emerging from the mist and the fog, the wounded soldiers leaving a hospital ward because part of the hospital had been hit. And as far as I can see, the 15-year-olds are almost seeing these ghostly figures emerging out of the mist. It's these kind of unexplained things. Then you see... Yes, as I say, there are people trying to make their way to the hospitals on the fringes of the old city and the streets beneath them. The tar has completely melted. The tar has started to bubble. Feet are getting stuck in the tar. People now can't move. It has the quality, it has the literal qualities of a nightmare. People having then to get rid of their shoes, but then their feet burning and their feet burning so much that they fall to the ground and then hands and elbows burning and then they can't move anymore. And then, you know, these are the people who are then drawn up into this fire tornado. It has the qualities of a, worse than a nightmare, actually. Then, on top of that, you have the intense claustrophobic horror of the brick cellars themselves, and those within the cellars, say these women and the children and the elderly, who had no idea that the ventilation was so bad that basically it's a pure carbon monoxide and various other chemicals uh, from the fire were beginning to whisper through that darkness. There were those who would have started to feel the tightness in their chest and the, the difficulty in breathing, and perhaps they might have put it down to fear, or they might have put it down to intense anxiety. So many people have suffered heart attacks, then just have suffocated. As I say, it's good. It is kind of almost impossible to take in the scale in just a, a few hours. Then of the inferno then rising so high that people were just mummified and liquefied. It has to be said, the Dresden City Archives has done the most fantastic job in eliciting and soliciting uh, eyewitness accounts from uh, those who were there on the night. So they had a, a, a number of contributions from people who were children at the time basically some teenagers and some children younger than that. Uh, they've also managed to get some diaries and letters, too, of people, of older people, older civilians, as I say, like George and Marilyn Erler, uh, who were there that night. You get an intense flavour of uh, what the city was like before that as well, and kind of what came after. But uh, through these eyewitness accounts, you, you, you start to get a sense of that, of, of that kind of mosaic of horror. And that's everything from the understanding of the, the difficulty of moving, the, the horror of a street in front of you going up in flames, so you having to backtrack and find another route out. That terror of going down to a cellar as the second bombing raid started, there was one particular eyewitness who said that, that there was a brewery that had a cellar, and that seemed to be slightly firmer uh, than most cellars. But to get down to it, you had to go down some several flights of stairs. And then you just basically had this concrete cellar. And in the second wave, this witness remembered that suddenly the cellar started filling up with more and more people that hadn't been there before. And he realised that refugees were coming and people were just fleeing in off the streets. And then suddenly there was intense claustrophobic horror of suddenly there's no sitting room anymore and suddenly standing room becomes difficult as more and more people are piling into this darkness. And then you suddenly realise on top of that the vulnerability of just the single light bulbs. And if the light bulbs should go, people trapped in that darkness. How do you even begin to fathom that? All I found myself doing, reading those accounts is I mean, the mind recoils, the mind flinches. Uh, but you can't help putting yourself in that position. You can't help imagining what you yourself would have done in those circumstances. And I don't think I would have behaved with a fraction of, of the rationality of so many of the accounts that I read, or indeed a fraction of the generosity and kindness that you see in so many of the accounts of people helping other people, people helping the elderly, people helping mothers with pushchairs get upstairs out of cellars. In a nightmare like that, you would imagine all the worst aspects of human nature come before, but in fact, actually, in so many of the accounts, you see very quietly so many of the best aspects of human nature too. 
so amazing, you know, from, from the doctors who carry on working, even though part of the hospital has been hit, and even though the injuries that are coming in, I mean, the burns, it's just too hideous to imagine. But, but people carry on, and people helping each other to the hospitals. There, there were some cases where some elderly people just sat on steps and either wouldn't or couldn't move, either sort of transfixed with fear at the, the, the flames reaching to the sky above them or or giving up. But the younger people around them, the teenagers, saying, ah, no, we're not leaving you here. Come on, you're coming too. And, oh, to be that together. Um, and I'd say in a story that's so intensely dark, you find yourself instinctively looking for the points of light. And there are these points of light, outbreaks of human kindness that you really would not expect to see in a cataclysm of that nature. That was Sinclair Mackay. Dresden, The Fire in the Darkness, was released a few days ago, published by Viking. And look out for a review of the book in the March issue of BBC History magazine, which goes on sale on the 20th of February. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Friday when Michael Wood will be reflecting on the story of Peterloo. (laughs) 